Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Michael. Welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Avatar, the 2009 film written and directed by James Cameron. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Calleros. Hi. So before we jump in, uh, letting you guys know that our patron exclusive for this month is going to be Avatar The Way of Water, or H2O, as I like to call it. Or Avatars with a dollar sign. The dollar sign that has so many names. It's going to get $2 billion for each name that we give it. Uh, so if you want to hear all of our hot take thoughts coming off the, the water presses of Way of Water, head over to the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon uh, to sign up. Water presses? Uh, the water, water presses. <laughs> you know. There could be water presses. There's sure. no way to know. You're right. You're probably what's right. What's going to come. There's going to be yep. underwater printing presses in the new way of water movie. Weirder things have happened in the Avatar <laughs> universe. You're not wrong. Basketball uh, has happened. <laughs> uh, we're off. All right. So, uh, so Avatar is until very recently the highest grossing movie of all time, two point something billion dollars. Before that, Avatar, I knew it only as there's a new James Cameron movie coming out and it's going to be big and it's sci-fi. He's returning to sci-fi. It's going to be awesome and epic. And so I was like, I'm not going to watch any trailers. I'm not going to look at anything. I'm going to go in cold and be like have my mind blown by this like hard sci-fi space adventure that we're gonna go on uh mm-hmm. Michael and I, I, we did this together by the yes. way like, like we're ne- neither of us gonna read anything about it we're not gonna know anything about it uh we went to the the, <laughs> the metreon in san francisco which is like the biggest imax theater at least it was back in 2009 uh, in San Francisco. So like traveled out to the city to watch and got there early so we could stand in line. And I was like, all right, let's do this thing. Hard sci-fi. I'm ready, James Cameron. And then there were blue people aggressively everywhere, <laughs> running around, playing basketball. And I was just thrown so hard off of whatever, like, expectation horse I thought I was riding. Uh, <laughs> 
just bucked you right off. And I don't it's think definitely a, Panda, a Pandora critter. Yeah. Yeah. The expectation. Uh, the bond didn't take. The bond did not oh, take. Oh boy! Uh, I was thrown, and I don't think I've ever uh, been able to recover from that initial throw. Um, it's generally how I feel about this movie. There's a lot of interesting things to talk about with it. It is very simple in its plot, and that is both good and a topic of criticism and conversation. Um, and, you know, it was obviously hugely popular and hugely successful. I can't say it's a bad movie, but I also can't say that I love this movie and I can't say why that is. And so I'm curious to talk about all of that with you guys, but kind of just curious to get yeah your your general thoughts on Avatar. Brian, do you want to start us off? Yeah, you know, I was thinking as we were you know, as preparing for this, I was thinking about my first experience watching the movie and I can't really remember if I had like what my expectations were. I don't know if they were super high, but I don't think they were super low either. I mean, James Cameron just has this like weird career where he's made eight movies basically, but he like waits several years and then makes Titanic and then waits, you know, and it's just like, okay. Um, and, uh, and I definitely saw it in 3d, uh, I, I max 3d, I think. And you know, that's the way to see this movie, right? Like I was just like, I remember being the most surprised by just, scenes of dialogue where I was just like, look how far away that door is. It's all the way in the back, you know, <laughs> like, and I just, that like felt immersive to me. But then also during action scenes, I kind of didn't care that it was 3d. Cause I was, it was like, my brain was too overwhelmed with just watching the action and stuff. You know, normally when you're watching an action scene, your brain can kind of like miss every other shot sometimes. Right. Cause there's, it's like information overload a little. Um, so then you add 3d to that. And I think it was just, I didn't feel strongly one way or another. Um, and then I think not feeling strongly one way or another is how I feel about avatar in general. Like I, you know, I bought the Blu-ray when it came out, but I haven't watched it in 13 years since I saw it in the theater the first time. Uh, I think maybe I watched it like right when the Blu-ray came out. But for the most part, I have not like thought about it or watched it. And I think that's sort of everyone's experience is like 10 years later, we're all going, oh, right, Avatar. Um, and then, and you know, it's interesting to revisit something now with that much time behind you. And I think the movie still looks pretty good. And I think the story is still whatever you know and obviously like we're going to talk a lot about the the writing and the story and and just the plot in general um but yeah it's just a movie that feels like what an achievement technically for its time but also what a movie that just didn't really stick with me or a lot of people uh, in any sort of significant way yeah yeah, and the, the technical achievement cannot be understated. Watching it again, there were shots where I was like, this is this could not be better. This is a CGI shot that I don't know how you could make it better. And that is really impressive for something that's, you know, 12 years old, 13, whatever it is at this mm -hmm. point. Um, yeah, cool. Okay, Trisha, what are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, generally very much agree with you guys. I'm going to come out of the gate here and say this is a good movie. Sure. It's probably even a very good movie. Um, it has a rock solid structure. Uh, it is incredible to look at. It's very immersive. For the most part, it's very entertaining, 
Watching it this time around, although I had retained, like you guys hadn't seen it since 09, um, and had retained very little of the actual mechanics of the plot um, beyond the very rough unobtainium people want it, it's men bad, uh, Navi good and big battle. Um, like other than that, I had kind of just, uh, oh yeah, love story also. But like the details of how it all unfolds, I absolutely had no uh, recollection of. That being said, scene to scene as I was watching it this time, I was like, yep, still on this ride. And like, it's still moving. And honestly, like I'm having fun. Um, I found myself really amped up during like some of the battle sequences near the end. And I was like, yeah, big pterodactyl, pull him out of the plane, throw him over there. Yeah, get him. Like, I love it. It's great. Um, there's so much about it that really works. Um, and you get the sense when you watch it that the elements that are criticized often for being simplistic and or derivative um, are that way on purpose, right? And we can get into that. And so there's not a sense of like messiness or someone making a movie that they didn't meticulously engineer or want to make, right? This is clearly at every moment the exact movie James Cameron wanted to make and like opted for some, you know, this kind of archetypal myth um, story and didn't decided not to complicate it with like really any sci-fi elements at all. He just really made a straight allegory. Um, and I like, it's hard to fault that. Um, that being said, I'm curious as to why it clicked with so many people at the time and then seems to have uh, absolutely vanished from public consciousness. Um, I wonder if the, the lack of IP is a contributing factor, right? And, and Star Wars, you know, you have a, a totally original story that is borrowing like very old, like sort of mythological forms in Star Wars, but then you immediately had sequels. So the universe was like, pretty immediately expanding and stayed in consciousness for a long time. And then with other things like Lord of the Rings um, and Harry Potter, you have a piece of existing IP that people have already really loved and latched on to. So there's already kind of a fandom there that can sit and wait between movies and happily do that and, and things like that. So I think there's an, there's sort of an interesting like outlier here with Avatar where it's this richly designed, like very expansive story world. Um, and yet, you know, 13 years later, we're kind of like Avatar. What? A <laughs> yep. There it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm like looking forward to diving into all of it. Badooks. Diving into the way of water. Of water. water. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Cool. Good. We're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. All all interesting points that I think. Yeah. Let's let's talk about right after Alex. Tell me your thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I won't repeat what you guys have already said because I agree with almost all of it. Um, I think the striking experience I had from that first viewing that Michael described in the IMAX theater in San Francisco was. You know, this movie presents some almost like anime wacky imagery uh, to the audience in an otherwise like 
movie that is trying to be photorealistic. You know, you begin in these shots in space, this really cool looking spacecraft approaching a planet, signaling that this is a James Cameron like sci-fi epic. Uh, we get kind of the traditional James Cameron like marine soldier uh, base and, and the, the typical cast of characters we see there. And then just very rapidly, we get to Jake Sully waking up in a cartoon body. And it, and it, I just watching it again, I was like, he does not ease us into this at all. Uh -uh. There's, we got a little preview of like an embryonic, like tank Navi for, and that's pretty weird. And it's like, wait, what? And then very shortly afterwards, we have a sequence that just feels extremely cartoonish in a way that even later sequences do not feel. Like I think in, in the kind of Navi tribal world, things start to kind of feel, you know, like they all belong and you kind of are used to the aesthetic at that point. But there's this harsh, harsh transition when he wakes up in that avatar body in like the hospital gown and then just runs outside into this kind of like almost like college campus environment, <laughs> <laughs> like farm and basketball field and like people in avatar bodies like doing college campus things and running around and just like getting in the way wearing of people wearing human clothes wearing human like, clothes yeah wearing like yeah. tank tops and shorts and yeah just that is such a hard turn and such like a good like it's the kind of thing that you feel like your brain is broken because yeah. you just like the movie looked like a movie <laughs> and that you like like other movies you've seen and then very quickly, you're now in this like strange animated movie that is also not animated as live action. And there's Sigourney Weaver, uh, like in, in total uncanny valley, wearing a Stanford like halter top, like with an elongated blue face, like smiling a big toothy grin at me. And I just don't know what the hell is happening. <laughs> and so like, this movie, I think is just so... I, I I just that in and of itself, I thought was just such a weird, fascinating choice for a movie that is so, as you said, Trisha, it seems like James Cameron is making exactly the movie he wants to make the choice to not ease his audience into this, like really almost like outrageous aesthetic. is like one of the more fascinating choices in this movie. And by the time we get to like the midpoint of the film, I am fully engaged and I am used to looking at blue, tall skinny cat people and i am actually very immersed in the story by that point but it takes me a while and it like it was the same thing on this viewing where it it took me a while to like just be watching a story and not just be totally distanced by the visuals yeah. so anyway that's my avatar experience <laughs> <laughs> well it's interesting because that what you guys were both just saying I, I think is a little connected i'm kind of connecting it in my mind which is you know Trish, you were saying like it didn't have this like cultural impact like these other franchises. And I was thinking, if you think about The Matrix or something, it's like, what if you could unlock your mind in such a way that you could dodge bullets and you could come out into the real world and all this kind of stuff, right? Star Wars. What if you had a lightsaber and what if there was the force and what if this, right? What if you could blow up planets with whatever? Um, and Avatar is, is it's like, what if you could be taller and skinny and blue, right? Like, like there's not, and you know, you can ride a pterodactyl, right? Like there's plenty of, of cool things going on here, but it's not like 
oh my gosh, imagine, right? Um, obviously, for the character of Jake, being able to plug into an avatar is is huge, right? He doesn't have use of his legs. And that's, that's you know, one of the more interesting things about his character design. Um, but then what you're saying, Alex, it's like even in the world of Avatar, he's like the what 50th person to do this right so like that it's not even special it's like it's like it's not i think it would be really interesting if nobody had ever done this before and then jake is for whatever reason the only the first person who can do it and then he goes out and then he encounters the navi and of course they don't realize he's a human because how could they ever they've never experienced it before but instead it's like no there's a whole bunch of them they're they're out playing basketball they sigourney weaver's like hung out with them a bunch like they like you know what i mean so it's sort of like in in the real world there's not there's not this big what if question that makes the the world so fascinating, but even in the world itself, it's like what he is doing is nothing special, right? So it's not until, like you said, Alex, kind of the midpoint or something where you're like, oh no, now now that they are under attack, like now I'm invested because now the story is different than it was before in some way, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a scale thing happening too. I think some of the roughest stretches of this for me are when humans are standing next to Navi. <laughs> Um, where it's, I'm, I'm curious, like, to what Why? Is, is that? Well, so, I'm picturing the end when, like, Zoe Saldana is, like, cradling. Yeah, and I'm, I is. was like, I was with you. Like, you had gotten me until I saw this shot, and now I'm, this is weird. Sorry. Well, it makes me wonder, you know, there's a little bit of, like, science behind, like, Uncanny Valley thing right. about the human brain and what we, like, accept and what we reject. And I wonder if there's some science behind, like, scale things that we mm-hmm. accept and reject. Because this feels like it's an exactly some kind of perfect zone of bizarreness <laughs> in right. terms of the scale. <laughs> like, if they were bigger, like, if they were 20 feet tall or 30 feet tall, I and so, you know, we kind of, like, they're dinosaurs, essentially, or something. I feel like that would be easier in some ways obviously you'd run into all kinds of other problems or the other thing i was thinking about this time around is like if humans were totally unable to interact in the environment with them at all so it's like <laughs> humans have to be like in a tank in a spaceship like they 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 get there slightly where it's like you have to be wearing a mask and like the soldiers are in their like mech things most of the time but it's not all the time. Like right. humans can stand next to Navi and that's one of the like things that my brain goes, nope. And like for right. some reason just can't make any sense out of because the scale is like a little too close while also still being biz- like just <laughs> weird and hard wrong. to comprehend with right. me. <laughs> me and my eyes and my brain are just like, I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know. I- I was watching this with my partner and she kept freaking out about the scale also because all of the human things that they have are so huge also. Like they're big enough that it makes sense for the Navi to be climbing on it. But then you're like, but wait, the humans are tight. So why are their ships so big? And like there was definitely weird scale magnitudes happening in this movie. But I just want to go back to what Brian was pointing out because it's such a good point. In most movies like this, you do have an audience surrogate or you have the Mm -hmm. film itself is like an audience surrogate where, yeah, this is the first time this is being attempted. This is a breakthrough. This is unusual. It's, you know, when somebody wakes up in the first avatar body, it's not 
the yeah the 50th and everybody's just like oh this is normal like it would be weird to the other characters because it is a new weird thing and that would have helped a lot i think with just the transition for me as an audience member if the movie like treated this as like insane and weird as it is but instead the Mm. movie almost was like gaslighting me into being like (laughs) no this is normal like just accept this sigourney weaver is uncanny valley like wearing a tank top like and blue and tall now just like that of course and it it was just the movie wasn't with me it was like just kind of like a freight train rolling ahead with or without me and i'm just holding on for dear life just wondering what the hell happened yeah well and yeah so i i think to me i think that connects to like exposition and one of our patrons Mm -hmm. ian made a comment when we asked what should we talk about he just wrote exposition 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 (laughs) And I think the kind of what we're circling around here is that the Jake getting into the Avatar body isn't really the inciting incident. I don't think it's like it's him going off and then running into Zoe Saldana and like going, Mm -hmm. getting pulled into this other world. Mm -hmm. And so like all the things that I think one might expect to be part of like going into this whole new world, like going into an alien body. Uh, aren't actually like uh, that's all set up so that then the story can start with this like you know jake getting pulled into the world of, of these people and so i think that's maybe partially why so much exposition has to happen so fast and the movie right. is treating this as like normal because you it needs you to think that it's normal because the weird thing the surprising thing hasn't happened yet right and you know there the beginning of the movie there's a lot of voiceover narration <laughs> right. uh cameron seneceros uh made a comment about that on patreon of just there's reliance on narration kind of throughout um and like really aggressive like scenes where like when when they're recruiting sam worthington it's like these two like cardboard cutout <laughs> like <laughs> agent people corporate standing, dudes right standing behind him while he's watching his brother be cremated <laughs> trying to convince him to like that's all happening in the same moment and it's right. like i guess narrative okay get up like that's a really weird thing for these people to be crowding and like, anyway yeah so yeah just that the beginning shoves a lot in to get you up to speed because the movie hasn't even started at that point mm. And there's a very like there's a very pulpy quality to it as well. Like the voiceover almost has a hard boiled detective right. vibe of like he died for the paper in his wallet. You know, it's, it's like <laughs> like what genre are we? Like what what is the tone yeah. of this movie? Like yeah, yeah. how serious should I be taking this? This episode of Beyond the Screenplay is brought to you by Movie, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Movie premieres a new film. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. Right now, Mubi's library includes one of my favorite post-apocalyptic films, 2009's The Road. It's a bleak, gorgeous drama featuring an incredible performance by Viggo Mortensen and a haunting score by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. The Road was a huge inspiration for a short film I directed the following year called Day 1000, so it was so much fun to rediscover this film on Mubi that inspired me so much. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash beyond the screenplay. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash beyond the screenplay for a whole month of great cinema for free. 
poorly written exposition, as you know, is when one character tells someone else something that they both already know for the sake of the audience. Um, but uh, but yeah, like it's it's interesting because there's so many things kind of working either against the movie or the movie is working against itself where it's like we have the narration, but the narration's sort of inconsistent. There's like a bunch in the beginning and then it's like, I don't know if it's like an hour and then suddenly like Jake will like say something to something. Like, oh, right. There's there's voiceover in this movie. Um, and then there's the exposition, just the normal exposition work of like we have to have the characters say things to each other in a way that communicates something to the audience, you know, um, which isn't all poorly done. You know, some of it's, I think, done pretty well. Um, and, you know, there's the like, remember, you got four minutes or else you're going to like <laughs> this thing that you guys must clearly know from training because it's right. very important. I'm going to remind you. Um, and uh, but then there's the problem of just like what was cut from the movie. So there there's an extended cut. There's, you know, what, 40 minutes of extended scenes or something like that, which to Cameron's credit, he said the theatrical cut is the my cut of the movie. There's an extended cut if you want to watch it. But it's like Jake on Earth and he gets in a bar fight and like then he gets recruited. And, you know, so it's hmm. we are being brought more into the, the story slowly. Um but obviously this movie can't afford to take that much time to do all that kind of stuff. Um, so, the, yeah, there's a lot of things going on at once. But what I will say uh, in response to what Alex was saying is I do like that there's still so many reveals happening up until the midpoint of the movie. Like, So it's like we jump right into the Avatar body. We jump right into Pandora. But then it still does feel like every five minutes I'm getting a new piece of information. I'm seeing a new, like the world is slowly revealing itself to me. So it's like, Oh, you can ride a horse this way. Oh, but now you can ride a pterodactyl this way. Oh, but now you can actually ride one. And now there's an even crazier one. Right. And, and then of course how he meets Neytiri and then how he meets the whole, you know, uh, the, the family and everything. Um, so I do think it's an interesting example of a movie that jumps right into it, but still does reveal itself over time. But of course, Alex, to your point, the big, the big thing this movie needs you to buy into is the blue bodies, right? And it's like, if that's not the thing that it takes time to do, then that can just throw you off the, the horse thing. <laughs> the horse thing. Well, and I think that this whole thing is about the ambition of the story and the ambition right. of the filmmaker, which is colossal. You know, um, any other filmmaker might have tried to take three movies to do this one movie um, because of the reasons we're identifying here. Mostly, you know, I think the phrase you used in the matrix sequel episode, or I don't remember which one Alex was, we need a longer on ramp. Um, mm. And I, I've thought about that a lot. And the shortness of the on ramp here <laughs> is a barrier to entry. I think for some, as we're identifying, but then also the voiceover is specifically designed to cut out the need for interstitial scenes um, and unfortunately also eliminates a lot of character work that otherwise would be done through action. And so, you know, I was really bummed not to be able to spend more time with um, Jake Sully on Earth and kind of get to know who he is and how he felt about his brother. Like, his brother vanishes from the movie so early on and he literally never talks about him again. But... The, the character journey, I think, could have felt a lot richer had we, you know, spaced out some of these plot beats in the way that we're identifying um, and make arrival on Pandora the inciting incident, you know, and make, you know, the 
long training, do a long training sequence where he's learning to use the avatar body. Like, and then he meets Natiri at the midpoint and then there's, you know, so, and then maybe there's like, he, there's like a little skirmish at the very climax with the bad guys. And he kind of like picks sides in the war or whatever, but it's not the full, full battle over the tree of souls until the next movie or whatever. I think that there is a version of this movie that is spaced out over two or three films, two or three 90 minute ish (laughs) films um, that might feel a little bit more uh, like the pace that we're used to. But the ambition of the filmmakers here is something I do applaud. Like there's a reason that this is an epic as well as being like this classic myth story and not epics are not just that way because of length, but they're that way because of scope. They're not telling the story of one person. They're telling the story of a civilization. They're telling the story of a huge, like, as we mentioned earlier, this is allegorical. This movie doesn't spend time making us care that much about Jake Sully because this movie is not about Jake Sully. This movie is about us. And this movie is about our civilization. And so it's like, it's painting in these much broader strokes because that's what it wants to be, wants us to be focusing on. And so I think, you know, the things that people criticize about, you know, the lack of uh, dimensionality in the characters or these other, you know, pacing things that we're kind of bumping on here, I think, again, are, they're a feature, not a bug, um, in terms of what the storyteller is actually attempting to do with the movie. Mm -hmm. Totally. And I will say, just watching it again, you know, 13 years later, I am blown away by just, like, the ballsiness of the world building. And, like, and just, like, and also the like earnestness of the message and the the kind of literalization of these kind of Gaia new agey uh you know green kind of philosophy ideas um is like really bold and really like unusual to see in a big commercial product um and so i really admire cameron for just being like you know i'm a titanic i can do whatever the hell i want and i'm gonna make my incredibly earnest like eco myth movie where literally the earth is like a living neuronal network that people can plug their ponytails into (laughs) and like i'm literally gonna just do that and uh i i admire him for it for just going for it Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, I mean, again, another Patreon comment from our friends over at the Script Apart uh, podcast uh, is raising this point of like the the simplicity and archetypal nature of the story is one of the most derided aspects. But as you're pointing out, it feels like clearly the right choice for this movie. Like, I I don't think there's anyone that saw this movie that didn't get it. Like didn't right. get what it was yep. about. Yeah. And uh, both thematically and like at any like beat in the story, I think you're always pretty clear about what the through line is. And so you can then hang off of that, this crazy sci-fi world building like you're talking about, uh, the crazy visual effects and technological things that were being done, right? 3D, this made every movie afterward have to be in 3D, whether it was <laughs> shot for that or not. Uh-huh. Um, but like it, it, it's doing a lot of things on lots of different levels. And so I do think, as we're saying, that having a simple, crystal clear story and 
uh, theme does serve the movie in that way. And so that's why I think, as you were saying at the beginning, Trisha, I think this is a good movie. I don't know that it is going to ever be my favorite movie, but I can't <laughs> knock it for many of the decisions that it makes to tell its story. Yeah. And, you know, what you were touching on just a second ago, Alex, is something I've been thinking a lot about. Um, so we recently talked to John Truby, uh, author of The Anatomy of Story, which we have quoted a lot on the channel. And then he has a new book coming out, The Anatomy of Genres, where he kind of dives into, um, you know, sort of these big thematic ideas behind each of the sort of major genres that storytelling tends to fall into. It's a really fascinating book and we had a great yeah. conversation with him. Um, but his, his chapter on myth, he spends a decent amount of time talking about Avatar and the interesting aspect of Avatar in its mythological form is that it is a myth, but it's not a myth in the type that we're familiar with or tend to be familiar with in Western culture. Um, he was talking about, you know, Joseph Campbell, uh, who he um, takes issue with, and uh, the monomyth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, he kind of takes issue with the monomyth as being this, like, unifying myth among all cultures. And uh, Truby's point in the book and when he was chatting with us is that, you know, it's not the monomyth. It, it wasn't like the main myth form for many, many years. Um, it is a myth that in modern times and especially in Western cultures has kind of wiped out all other notion of what a myth is. But this, you know, hero's journey, quote unquote, is the male like sort of warrior myth and fantasy of like a divide and conquer, sort of like a chosen one comes and like, defeats all of the enemies and like emerges triumphant in a great war or something. Um, and he was talking about this ancient form of like a female myth, which is more about cycles and rebirth. And instead of dividing and conquering, the female myth is more about growth and community. And he was saying, you know, the female myth is essentially, if the male myth is divide and conquer, the female myth is combine and grow. And he was pointing out that Avatar even though it has a huge battle at the end and like a kind of warrior king, if you will, um, in the character, that the philosophy of the Navi is very much that of the female myth and that Jake's cycles of rebirth, right? He points out that Jake is reborn three times in this movie. Hmm. Um, that Jake's cycles of rebirth, first when he's born, quote unquote, as an avatar, then when he's like accepted into the tribe, he has like that sort of coming of age ceremony and he's sort of born again as like an accepted member of the people. And then at the very end, when he's like literally born into the body for permanently, um, he's saying that's very much the female myth. And the movie is supplanting the male myth, but with the female myth. And there is something very unique about that, even though there are story beats that here that feel familiar to Western viewers, that there actually is something very uh, surprising about the way that the the... I guess denouement as well as like sort of imagery and values of mm -hmm. this myth come out in the themes. I think it's something Cameron has always done in his movies is there is this sort of like 
hard exterior kind of dude energy. And then there is kind of a softness there too, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's Titanic is like this big ballsy action y kind of movie, but obviously also like a, a you know, very much a, a romantic drama. Um, and then, and then obviously the heroines of Terminator and aliens, you know, and aliens being like about motherhood, even though it's a movie about a bunch of space Marines kicking ass. Right. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to see that like when, I think a lot of times it's like those two things come together and and it gives everyone hopefully something they can cling on to, whether you're more on kind of one side of, the, of that spectrum or the other. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, and thinking about how the movie ends, you know, like we talked about the uncanny valiness of that shot where gigantic uh, Natiri is holding little Jake Sully. But that's it's a striking image for like yeah. like one of the final images of our hero is it's kind of like this baby <laughs> and 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 the final and the final like shot of the movie is this like yoga ceremony uh around a magical like nature spirit tree to like rebirth him um that's very different than like you're saying trisha like you know we wouldn't expect that from you know star wars is like you know dudes getting medals in a in like yeah. a war in like a war room correct yeah and and this movie ends with like like a spiritual ceremony of rebirth with like a, you know, shaman mother <laughs> guiding it. And that's, yeah. that's, that's once again, that's, that's unusual. We're not used to seeing that in the biggest blockbusters uh, of, of Western uh, filmmaking. And, it, and that's part of what was disorienting about the movie, honestly, was just like, like, wow, this is earnest and, kind of mushy but cool and a lot of things at once and it, it, it makes you uncomfortable but it's also kind of great um so i'm i, I and it's part of part of part of why i'm excited for actually way of water is like now that i my brain's not going to be broken by these images and technology is, has advanced further I am genuinely excited to see what cameron does furthering these themes and just taking it wherever he wants to take it um, because nobody else is doing this with this kind of money. I mean, short of Piranha 2, the spawning, you know, the last two, the last, other times James Cameron has made sequels have been Aliens and Terminator 2. So if, right. that's, if that's to say anything about what avatars could be. <laughs> good track pretty record. good track record. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, you know, exactly. I think the ending especially as you're uh, highlighting there, Alex, is where it really like leans hard into the female myth, right? Because when he comes out riding on the big red pterodactyl and he's like, I am the most powerful, <laughs> hello. Um, like I, you know, I'm the menace from the skies and I'm the only one who can do this, even though I literally was just have been in a V for like two months. By the um, way, like that was another weird like I had no ramp for that moment either. It's no, like, no, 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 bring no. the voiceover back. I, I got to do something real crazy. Like <laughs> jumping on the back of it. I like, bet it I'm never gonna... looks up. Yeah. It's oh, like, yeah. wait, was this set up? Like what? <laughs> Where did yeah, this come it's, from? And it's now very he can subtle. command everyone. And he's, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, and then he rides into battle against, all the space Marines carrying a gun is the other thing. I'm like, I'm uh, sorry, you have a gun? You have a, okay. Um, again, the scale. Why would he be as a Navi hold a gun? Okay. Um, so I, I struggle with all of that. Uh, but 
you know, the image of him, you know, with his body broken, he can't even breathe the air on this planet. And that's what he nearly kills him in the end. And then he talks about how, like, they sent, they they didn't wipe out all of the humans. They just sent them home. Uh, and then he's like, you know, Taruk Makta was no longer needed. And so the big red pterodactyl just flew away and I wasn't the big warrior anymore. Um, and then I just became a Navi and like, he's a part of the people now. And there's this sense of like, he might be the leader, but he's not, he doesn't seem to have plans to continue amassing power or to like go to other planets or, or rule all the tribes or, you know, there's, there's this very sense of like, okay, we defeated the threat and now I'm just going to be among the people that I want to be among and like have a family. Right. And it's interesting that we, that one of the few things we know about way of water is that he definitely has a family um, and he's part of this community. So yeah, the ending I think is where it really sets it apart. And of course the values of the Navi, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, again, another patron comment um, from John Willis was talking about, you know, commander, army man whatever his name is Quaritch. <laughs> what is it the Say character's it name is Quaritch. q-u-a-r-i-t-c-h Stephen lang Stephen lang um but yeah just like he's such like a like a cartoon character almost like one dimensional cutout of like every possible stereotype that you could shove into this uh character but i think that Again, like we've been talking about, that simplicity and clarity gives you something to hold on to. So if you are, and this is extremely, uh, I guess, condescending, but if you are just like dude bro and I want to go watch (laughs) stuff, you have a very clear dude bro army person to signal the masculinity and make you feel comfortable that you're you're watching a movie and you you have to be worried that you're going to have thoughts and feelings or anything. (laughs) So you have that to placate, you know, whatever defense mechanisms that might come from that. And I think the, the sharpness of that rendering, like I'm saying, can lower those defenses so that you can have this story that ultimately does kind of subvert and supplant and kind of starts feeling, I'm going to say conservative, but ends up being very liberal. Like it it goes Mm. on a lot of places and I think it's accessible and not distasteful for people and just like how safe this like journey is, you know, he constructed this journey to be. And so uh, just another example of, I think it can go to those places and end in those places, maybe because it has these anchorings and very clear familiarity things so as to assuage any minds that might be freaked out lest they think they're going to watch a movie that ends in a yoga rebirth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think one thing I was noticing, it's like, yeah, there there are these very obvious archetypes in, in so many of these characters, but I think one thing that takes away from that a bit is how quickly characters just swap their beliefs or their objectives out of nowhere, which kind of takes away from from the archetype thing. So like 
You have Grace, you know, waking up. Where's my goddamn cigarette? We don't need you. We need your brother. He's dead. I don't care. You think you just want yeah. to waltz in here? And then like five <laughs> seconds later is like, oh, you're blue now. Have some fruit. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, the Navi are like, oh, we you you wandered into our thing. We're going to kill you. Like, nah, you know what? Let's teach you our ways. Right. And then later, like, <laughs> you need to leave forever. Oh, you can you tame the red bird. OK, well, you're fine. Like, lead us. Um <laughs> And then even Jake, right? It's like, I love I love these blue cats. Oh, but you want to attack them, right? So here's the weak point of their base. Like, obviously, <laughs> that changes quickly. But he's, like, so in love with them, but also so, like, no, this is my mission. I got to tell these guys how to, like, take these people down. And even uh, w- with uh, Quaritch, with Stephen Lang's character, it's like, there is there is that kind of cool surprise where it's not the third act, but it's, like, post-midpoint where suddenly the attack is starting right and like like i that is kind of a neat twist in the movie but it also just feels so unearned because it goes from like this kind of heart to heart that he and jake have where jake's like no just give me just give me another day i gotta finish it like i promise i'll be able to convince them and that kind of thing and then he's like now we found this video you saying it's not going to happen so we just order the attack immediately and it just it just feels like like these characters are just changing their minds about things all over the place. And I think that is, that's what hurts that. That's what keeps everything from feeling grounded to me sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think part of what I feel with this villain is that there, there is this tone genre thing where it almost feels like what I, I would expect from like a cart, like a Saturday morning cartoon villain, you know, they, they like watching, I used to watch as a kid, like the new adventures of Batman and Superman on like the WB. And and it was like a well-written, well-done, like comic book cartoon series. Uh, but but like it would have characters like this where it's like this is just like the very bad guy who's going to have like one liners constantly. You know, as they're bombing the Navi, we're going to keep cutting back to him saying like. Hoorah, like that's yeah. yeah. This is how this <laughs> is how it's done. Coffee. Yeah, right. like yeah. I want to be home in time mm. for dinner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tonight, boys. Like yeah, and it's literally like, those lines. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I expected in like the Superman cartoon. Uh, mm-hmm. But like, does that belong in this movie? Maybe it does. Maybe this movie is kind of a cartoon, actually, and I'm not watching it in the right way. But I think yeah, it's just it it part of the dis- disorientation I, I often have watching this film is the sense that like it has influences maybe from anime or from other forms. Um, but like I, I am not mentally in the right mindset for the, the kind of uh, the strategies that, that Cameron is utilizing. It, like, I feel like he's bringing in strategies from other forms that aren't like the big Hollywood summer blockbuster. Um, and it just feels out of place at times at the same time. Like it undeniably works. Like, you know, he is the bad guy and you feel that he is the bad guy constantly. So like it is effective, I guess, in, in just confirming that constantly and making me hate him. But it, it feels like there's also, you can do that using other techniques besides just, the cackling villain from a cartoon. Um, yeah. Yeah. I do wonder if the sort of caricature feeling that I get from some of these characters comes from uh, a lack of any hint of any backstory whatsoever. Mm. And so, which I think is just a, a product of 
a lack of time, right? This movie, again, going back to the ambition of it and how much it's trying to cover, like, if you were able to really, like, even spend one more scene with any of these characters, there'd be a way to potentially visually signal or hint in dialogue about where in the hell they came from. How did they get to Pandora? Why do they care? I feel like we actually get this a little bit with Norm, um, the, you know, fellow uh, mm. Navi avatar driver. <laughs> nerdy, nerdy kid. Yeah, okay. the nerdy yeah. one. Um, I think we get this a little bit with him, right, where it, it we get the sense of, like, he's been training for X, you know, however long, and I've been practicing my Navi, and I'm excited about this, and this is why I'm here. And we get a tiny bit of it with Grace, right, we're meant to care a little bit more about her. Um, I think if there were some of that a little bit with the villains, it'd be nice. It would just ground them a tiny bit more. Um, and I think that that, you know, the movie isn't interested in doing it. And I wonder if also there just isn't time to do it. Um, maybe both. But I think there is something like, you know, maybe when we first got here, we were setting up our camp and we had a run in with the Navi and like, my commanding officer was killed right in front of me. And so, you know, something like that with maybe that Stephen Lane character or or whatever, right? Like, you know, I've dealt with this situation before. I was, I think he maybe does hint this or whatever. It's um, like a little mini. It's, in the, it's yeah. in the like, here you are at the safety briefing. Um, but just something along the lines of, I am personally angry about X. And I have decided to take it out on the Navi. Um, Even Giovanni Ribisi's character, I feel like, first of all, really doesn't work for me here. Um, (laughs) I didn't know he could talk normal. Like, this whole time, he could just do this. (laughs) Right. Come with me. You see this little rock here? It's like, yeah, Grace didn't know about this. She didn't know about the rocks. That scene, the the exposition (laughs) in that scene where he's like... Telling her what unobtainium is, I'm like, oh, she's never yeah. heard of it. I see. <laughs> uh, gotcha. But anyway, but the Giovanni Ribisi character, even that would be something. Like, maybe he inherited the corporation from his father, and he has family expectations he's trying to live up to, or you know, something just just some kind of personal reason why this is all happening. I think is missing for me. Um, and again. Maybe there just wasn't time. I don't know. Yeah, I I think this is really interesting because I think I would also prefer those things. But also, like you're saying, this movie seems uninterested in it. And, totally. And I, I feel like in some ways, as you, so as you were speaking, I was thinking about the original Star Wars, A New Hope. And we talked a little bit about it on one of our Star Wars episodes, <laughs> right? The, the What is Star Wars episode? Um about like in the original Star Wars, it is pretty black and white. There's like good and there's evil. You don't really know anything about Darth Vader and all the people in the boardroom are just British and evil and they're the bad guys and they're the Empire and the rebels are good. And like it is very simple and black and white. And I think that that uh, has a strength. And I think that that's the case in this movie also, where like it seems like the movie doesn't want me to think two ways or have empathy for Giovanni Ribisi. There's like a shot where he like sees the tree blowing up and he has like a look of like maybe doubt. Uh, 
But yeah, so I think it's interesting that the movie is so uninterested in that. And that if one of these characters had suddenly felt grounded, it might have made everything else feel that much more Mm. out of whack or out of sync. But the exception to all of this, the place where I feel like there is depth is in Zoe Saldana's performance. Like Mm. for some reason, she just feels like a completely lived in, believable whole character in 3D in a way that I don't feel like any other character, ironically, in this movie does. Totally. And I think if you're going to have a character that is that, I think it is important that it's her as that is like the kind of the emotional connection through character that we have to the world of Navi. So mm. uh, I think that is interesting that that's how that all played out intentionally or unintentionally. And then going back to just like who's the movie movie for or or like why is he bringing in these tropes that strike me as kind of kid tropes like maybe that's why like like a lot of people saw this movie when they were younger than I was when I saw it and I think it like if I saw this when I was nine years old it, it might have just blown my freaking mind and been my favorite movie ever uh, and and I think it helps in that kind of a movie to not have confusing complicated characters uh, you know like i was i was imagining just now you know what would be a more interesting way to establish this villain's hatred for the navi you could have some like really brutal scene early on where we see a bunch of marines get ambushed by navi and get like slaughtered and we don't know the navi yet so all all we know is the fear the marines feel where they're all just getting like speared left and right and everybody's dying you could set up like a legitimate uh perspective of Oh my God, they really are savages. They really are terrifying and they are, you know, they will just kill us on sight. Uh, but then that, that wouldn't really be the movie for kids that were like, you can just earnestly love the Navi and feel they are like unambiguously the good guys. Um, so I, I think the movie that I wanted isn't the movie that would have made $2 billion potentially. Well, and to your point, I think I was. I today that I was reading a quote from James Cameron where he said something like, yeah, the movie cost $300 million. We couldn't afford to have a target audience. Like, (laughs) (laughs) which is like, yeah, I see you. It's for everybody. (laughs) It's interesting because we just talked about the Truman show and how we like that. It's kind of a fable that's self-contained and we don't have a lot of backstory, you know, but that's, a hundred minute movie about one person in a very specific world and about that person sort of escaping from that world. And even that character, we do get a lot of backstory for that one character. Um, and this is, you know, a almost three hour movie with a bunch of characters and a brand new world and two sides of an argument and one character switching sides. So it's like, yeah, it's, it is also a, a myth, a fable, you know, but to your point, Tricia, it's like, but if the characters feel too two-dimensional, too wooden, then it just feels like, well, we're not even, it's not even like a real story anymore, right? It's just, it's just a cartoon. Speaking of cartoons called Avatar, I'm so sorry to our patron, Zach, who wanted to hear our take on Prince Zuko's redemption arc. I was, I was not clear in the Patreon post which Avatar we were talking about. I understand that reference as I started watching Avatar The Last Bender, Airbender recently. And I'm, I'm, the Last Bender. The last, I'm an expert on it. He gets so you know. drunk. <laughs> yeah. Well, so 
why don't we continue this conversation in lessons? Um, we don't want this podcast to be three hours long also. Um, <laughs> there was a, the moment you talked about earlier, Brian, where they attack early, right? And they destroy the tree of mm-hmm. life, right? It feels like I'm assuming that's the crisis point. I didn't really like stop and like home tree or the tree of souls. <sighs> because they, they bulldozer, they bulldoze over some like special trees. Right. And that's where Terry's trying to on, like, oh, okay. on the way, on okay. the way to home tree. Right. Okay. But yeah, then yeah. they also destroy home, home tree. tree. Right. right. So there's right. like the ancient communication trees. Right. Where they have sex for the first time. Where they have sex. Uh, In front of all their ancestors. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And then they bulldoze those and then they go from there to destroy home tree. And that's like, yeah, the beginning of that. And then there's a whole, you know, big regrouping before the attack on the tree of souls. And so this is a rare example and it's really not a concern anyone needs to have. But I think it's just interesting to point out that there are occasionally in movies crisis points that are so awful that I disengage from the movie because Mm. I'm like, well, you already lost everything. Like nothing really matters after this point. Mm. And uh, the crisis should feel like that. It should feel like all hope is lost. Like that's the whole point of it. But weirdly, some movies are so successful that I'm like, you just lost your connection to all your ancestors for forever and your home to like, what are we even fighting for anymore? Like, it feels like you guys have lost. Like, maybe you can kick people off. But emotionally, it feels so devastating to me that it's like I I don't feel uh, that there's anything left to fight for. So I just think it's an interesting thing that can happen. And I don't know if that happens for other people at all. But it's a thing that's, that has happened frequently enough that I think it's worth calling out to just have, like, as a little thing in the back of your mind that that want to make sure there's still something worth fighting for and worth saving uh, in your movie. And that's probably the case here. That's just how I felt about how this all went down. But Mm. Avatar isn't a tree. It's a people. (laughs) I think is what they say. Well, And and I think maybe part of it is there's there's just a lot to keep track of as far as like their resources. Because like this thing is bulldozing over like soul trees, but there's like a main soul tree also that has not been bulldozed over yet, which I also lost track of. I was like, oh, right. wait, that like the shiny white like branches are being bulldozed there. Um, so, yeah. So I think and, part of it is a clarity of like there's still the last outpost that needs to be defended. Right. That's probably the most actionable takeaway is that like yeah. I thought this was the thing of like if you lose it, that's it. Game over. And so right. we already had game over. And then you were like, no, there's more game. And I was like, well, you just blew that on this previous thing. So mm. anyway, that was my one of my thoughts. Trisha, what's your lesson? Yeah. Um, one thing I was left wishing for this time around um and again, I'm not really sure this is a criticism. This just goes back to like the character design. Um, so you mentioned earlier, Michael, that uh, Neytiri feels like the the most realized character by the movie. And part of it is Zoe Saldana, for sure. Um, but part of it is we have a story about her relationship with the humans, right? She and her sister were there. They were going to school. 
her sister was, you know, never took to it or was distrusting. Um, and then there's this horrifying story where the sister was murdered in the doorway of the school uh, in front of Neytiri. And so Neytiri's distrust of people and um, of humans and everything is sort of explained. And then we also meet her family, right? We meet her father and her mother. Her father dies. There's, there is context for that character, and because she is the person teaching Jake the ways of the Navi, in her performance, we hear the reverence in her voice for their traditions, for their values, as she's explaining their values. I was really struck this time around about, um, you know, when she kills all those um, dogs that are attacking him <laughs> early on. And my dog was very upset by that. (laughs) (laughs) Started watching the screen going, what is going on? You know, and he says, thank you. And she immediately is like, no, thank we don't think that Mm -hmm. we don't think for this. They died for, they didn't have to die. Right. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a personal stake for her in the traditions and the ways of the Navi. She is a physical embodiment of their value system. And I think that that is what part of the reason why she feels fully rendered, fully like, you know, we can understand everything about her when she speaks and how she feels at every moment. We know how she feels, not just because of the look on Zoe Saldana's face, but also because we understand what Neytiri cares about. Contrast this with Jake. What does Jake care about? I wish I knew. Um, You know, I think that he's left a little bit as a blank slate on purpose, Um, but it'd be nice to know what his value system is before he arrives on, on Pandora and meets, and meets the Navi. We get a little bit of like, I was once a Marine and now I'm, I'm still always a Marine and it it never really leaves you. And, um, he had a brother again. We don't know hardly anything else about his family. Did he have a community? Are his parents still alive? Um, is he in touch with anybody from his past? Does he have neighbors? <laughs> like, just any any old thing about because what we're seeing, what we're supposed to be seeing is why he falls in love with the value system of the Navi in contrast to whatever his value system was that was unfulfilling for him in his previous life. And so if he really is unfulfilled by the value system of having been a Marine and like, again, he feels, I guess we get maybe like he's abandoned by his government or the, you know, whoever sent him into combat, they don't want to fix his legs now. So they've just left him. We get a slight sense of that, but again, it's not, this is, I feel left behind. I feel betrayed by that. Or, like, I want to believe in it. I want to believe in the cause that I was fighting for in on Earth, in whatever war I was in. Like, I wanted to believe in it. I still want to believe in it. But it's never really rung true for me. It's never really left me feeling fulfilled. So, I'm, you know, Neytiri is an amazing example of a crystal clear value system um, and therefore an arc. So when she, you know, welcomes Jake in... We know how much that costs her because human beings killed her sister right in front of her. There's a sense of of context and continuity for that character. And it's kind of missing with Jake. And I wonder if that's why he 
is not as memorable of a character for people um, coming out of this movie where it's not like, you know, people walking away going like, I really understand Jake Sully. And like he's such an iconic character, right? He's, mm-hmm. he's not um, because there's that sort of lack of context around who he is, where he came from, what he cares about before he gets there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's really interesting that it's for a movie that seems to be about clarity and telling its, you know, mythic story. It has all these, you know, symbols and ideas working at this macro scale, but doesn't seem that interested in rendering characters to be representatives of uh, ideology beyond, as you're saying, Neytiri and cardboard cutout commander army man. Um, Because I think it's interesting that like the rest of the characters also don't feel particularly memorable because I don't know what they represent besides they're on team good or they're on mm-hmm. team bad. Like Michelle but, Rodriguez. Exactly. Like, yeah. 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 Like I forgot she was in this movie. And I was like, all right, you're in this movie. And you have like three scenes and you have an arc technically because you're different at the end than you are in the beginning. I don't really understand why that happens. Um, well, and even just a line of dialogue uh, would go a long way in terms of the Jake character of like, you know, where I grew up, you know, nobody looked out for you and the Navi, they look out for each other. Like, Literally anything like that. He, where he's, he's been looking for community. You yeah, know, he, he's just some kind of hints of yeah. he's being pushed along an arc, and I think that's why it's also hard to track. Where the moments where he like goes against Quaritch and goes against his directives, right, or his mission or whatever, it's hard to track what those mean for him. Mm-hmm. Like when right. he gets up and makes those choices, I don't know what the cost is or what the personal like decision making is. Um, that's going into it. The personal stakes kind of feel like they've been left out of the movie in some ways. And it, yeah, I don't want to like belabor the point, but I think it's also interesting that so much at the very beginning is made of, you know, because as you were saying, Brian, he doesn't have use of his legs and his human body. And then he gets an avatar body. It feels like that's so much of his initial like reason to be bought into this thing that it, it almost feels like that's going to take, um, like, be the foundation of, of something. But it's really not. That's just mm. a thing that's, you know, a, a worthwhile, cool thing for him at the beginning. But then he falls in love with this world. And that's really what it's about. And, like, as you're saying, there isn't that setup for uh, why he would fall in love with this world or what's different about it. And so, yeah, it's this interesting thing where there's some stuff that's set up about him, but it's all very mechanical and then falls by the wayside pretty quickly. Yeah. So, yeah. It's an interesting protagonist. Can't wait to see him again. Alex, what's your <laughs> lesson? <laughs> uh, two quick things that I would not do. Um, say no to Papyrus font. Yeah. And uh, yeah. say no to using the exact same Velociraptor. And I think I heard a T-Rex sound at yeah, one point. Man. Like yeah. just yeah. the literal Jurassic Park like samples of like the Velociraptor yelping. It's like, come on. Like repeatedly used for like the horses or whatever. Yeah. Like you can't do that. Right. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. That was aside. I'm with you. And the papyrus um, font is egregious. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> God damn it. Yeah. Um uh, I guess my lesson would, would be like I an appreciation 
uh, of James Cameron truly pushing technology forward with this movie oh, with yeah. performance capture. Because I think I didn't realize what a big deal this movie was for the thing that we take for granted now for like every movie, every video game, which is just the performance capture technology to really capture the facial performance of an actor, not just the body language, um, but those head mounted cameras that, that really allow the every, you know, micro expression to come across in an animated character. Um, and I think it's really interesting. There's also a meta aspect of this movie. Part of what feels so surreal about it is the kind of, video gamey or cartoonishness of the world of Pandora. And it does feel like there is a meta thing happening here of the average Joe disheveled guy, you know, getting into a VR tank and waking up in this beautiful, amazing, impossibly gorgeous, natural world. Um, and it really struck me this time. It, it felt like a ready player one almost, or, mm. or something where like, Pandora feels so hyper real or hyper surreal or too colorful, too neon, too uh, fluorescent. Uh, it, it it gave me this feeling of like, oh, yeah, this this really does function as kind of metaphor for escaping to virtual worlds and escaping from, you know, the the dreary earth industrial reality and getting back to this lost Eden uh, that we don't have access to anymore on this planet. Um, so anyway, appreciating both the technological advancement this movie represents and also it seems like there is some meta awareness on Cameron's part of playing with just where we are both in our uh, civilization and kind of our our nostalgia and like mourning for nature and also the ascendancy of like virtual spaces and virtual worlds and that being kind of our substitute <laughs> for, for like the actual space around us being pleasant. Um, yeah. Yeah. Pandora is going to be the first place I go in the metaverse metaverse. <laughs> You're so close that. to making that so joke. Close. <laughs> well, I think about, you know, uh, like, uh, there's a new PlayStation VR headset coming out soon. And like the killer game for that's going to be the horizon VR, which is basically like a Pandora sci-fi magical world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely having horizon to Radon, uh, like yeah. associations of like, Oh yeah, that's interesting. Real quick. I think it's interesting. You know, we've talked about the, the sort of, decade of movies becoming we can do anything now and this is right at the end of that decade and Cameron wanted to do like he had this idea 20 years before this movie was made or something uh, and then he was going to make it in the mid aughts but it's like if you look at Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park and then forward to Titanic and then forward to Lord of the Rings forward to like Children of Men and you know some of these big like epics that we had around then it almost felt like Avatar came right when we were kind of just getting used to everything. It was like we were really because then it's like we already had, you know, Iron Man at that point. We had like and we were, you know, we had a bunch of like bad movies in like the mid aughts and stuff. So it almost felt like if Avatar had come out five years earlier, it would have been just like we wouldn't have been able to believe what we were seeing, but it almost felt like right. and this is nothing against the movie, nothing against the technology, but it's like, yeah, for it as impressive, for as impressive as it was, it's like, we just spent a decade going, 
we can do this now. We can do this now. We can do this now. And it was sort of right. like by the time Avatar came out, we're like, yeah, that's it's just it's another one of them. It's another one of these. Look at what we can do now. And again, that's just a timing thing. I'm going to totally. call that wonder fatigue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true because it, it's like on, the, on the one hand, there's just the sheer amount of visual effects. I mean, it is like an animated movie, basically. Oh, truly. Yeah. Is like overwhelming. But yeah, there are there are plenty of shots where it, you know, just there's a bunch of Navi hopping across a log and it doesn't feel great. You know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like compared to other movies that came out around that time, it doesn't feel any more impressive honestly um this is the sheer scale of it is impressive and the performance capture is impressive oh yeah um, well, yeah how much i it. feel like i'm watching a real person when i'm watching one of the main navi characters like that's the most important the faces are amazing yeah right. like the way yeah. that they move in the environment is not always perfect but the the yeah. facial expressions and the performances are outstanding and like the rendering of the skin texture, yeah. Like oh, I think yeah. it's it's a scale thing, like you're saying, Alex. Where like there's enough bad shots that in my head I'm like, yeah, right. there's some stuff. But like the first shot where you see Nateri and she like kind of stands up and the right. light, like you can't that shot couldn't be better. Like it's yeah. just yeah. perfect. There's, so there like, there are so many standout shots where it's like, wait, this is weirdly good. Right. And then you have those like off putting shots where it's like the way they're bouncing around is like pretty not yeah. realistic. Um, and it's interesting yeah. that that. <laughs> that model kind of became the norm then for forever where mm. it's like most visual effects now are like good and like passable but because there's so many that have to be in any given marvel mm. movie no there's no budget or time to make any one right that yeah. spectacular it's the jurassic park thing where it's like jurassic park one is like we're going to use this sparingly so every time a t-rex is on screen it's going to look amazing right. and then you fast forward to jurassic world you know, any of them <laughs> it's just like dinosaurs everywhere all of the time yeah right. we cannot make these look amazing they're gonna all look pretty blah yeah, yeah. brian what's your lesson uh yeah i mean a, a lot of what we talked about but i was thinking about um what makes something feel three-dimensional which as you said is ironic to think about with this movie um but uh you know we talk about with characters so much right where it's like yeah you have a character archetype but then you want to take that and make them interesting in some way, make them complex. What about them goes against their archetype, right? What's different about them? Um, and, you know, the other end of the spectrum, you don't want to have a character who's like completely ununderstandable, where you never know what their objectives are, right? You kind of want something in the middle, something that feels familiar and new at the same time. And I was realizing, I think that's what it is about this movie, about this story, you know, not the movie itself in terms of the filmmaking and, and, and you know, the technical achievement, but the story that makes it fall flat is how much it feels all archetype and and Cameron has talked about like everything that he that he took from right and there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with being like here are my 20 favorite movies and books and I wanted to remix them into something that was my own but I was just realizing like every beat in this movie feels like I've seen it before and not just because I've seen the movie before but like when I saw it for the first time it's like not only does it feel like every other James Cameron movie, you know, it's like literally here are, here's like the new 
you know, soldier. And then here's all the other ones who want to talk crap. And then here's like the Vasquez slash Michelle Rodriguez character, you know, and like, here's the, you know, and even like Ridley Scott did this in Prometheus where it felt like he was trying to make like a James Cameron alien movie, right? Where it's like Idris Elba with a cigar. <laughs> now we have Sigourney Weaver with a goddamn cigarette. And it's just like everything feels like, yeah, I've done, I've, I've seen all of these beats before. Um, and you know, when when it doesn't feel that way is when I'm the most interested. You know, the, the the Navi and the idea of the avatars, the unexpected midpoint attack, some of the Pandora stuff, like those are the moments when I kind of lean forward a little bit because I'm going, oh, this is Avatar. This isn't every other mm. movie I've already seen before, you know? Um, so I was just thinking, yeah, if it's like, it's just like every element of filmmaking or storytelling, it's like find that thing that's kind of, archetype enough that it's familiar, but also unfamiliar enough that it feels complex and it feels like something that is unique to you, right? It's like you've got the Steven Seagal B-movie where everything feels like copy and pasted from every other movie. And then you have like some crazy, you know, Lars von Trier, Harmony Korine art film or whatever, <laughs> where it feels like there is no structure, nothing is happening. I don't know what's going on. But it's like almost all of the best movies uh feel like they are they are striking some balance in between where every aspect of the filmmaking is like this feels correct but this also feels unique and it feels mm. like there's something kind of special about it that's a very tall order obviously but i think i was realizing that almost so many aspects of this movie specifically the the screenwriting and the storytelling um and some of the character a lot of the character design is just it's so normal that I think that's kind of why this movie doesn't feel exciting. You know, Trisha, you were like, this movie has really solid structure. And it's like, yep, it has very normal structure. You know what I mean? <laughs> and again, the, where the attack happens, that's like the one time in the movie I'm going, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting this because that's not where I expect that to happen in a movie. Um, so, so yeah, just whatever, take that for whatever it's worth is just like find, find that balance between the, the familiar and the unique. Mm. Yeah. I I am really hoping we'll see. Maybe I shouldn't have any hope. I'm I am really hoping that Way of Water uh, will do something different than like the same structure as the first Avatar. Because from what I understand, they they are like migrating to like a different kind of Navi colony that has different ways. And I think it would be just like very exhausting if it was just literally learn the new ways of the new tribe. Uh, robots are coming to kill them we have the same battle at the end that might be exactly what this movie is and maybe it'll look really cool because it's in the water but i i would love it if the movie could surprise me and be like no this is a james cameron sequel we are going to evolve the form and not just do it again but i mean he's making five of them or whatever so who right knows? but that is the cool thing about sequels is that sequels tend to be able to go okay we've done the normal movie now what right. you know and and james cameron has made some amazing sequels by asking that exact question yeah well and i like i feel like all of this this gets to the heart of this movie that i the the puzzle at its core that i think just will never be able to be solved is like it's for some reason this movie that i'm like i uh, i don't know but also i'm like oh, but yeah uh, <laughs> I mean 
and maybe, somehow maybe, yeah. you know it's like these are lessons of like what to do and what not to do but at the end of the day it made two billion dollars it was the like most successful movie of all time for a very long time like it's just really interesting to be trying to critically analyze something that is was unambiguously successful but also felt like it was missing something in a way that is ineffable. I think it was back during the Oscar race in 09 or something. People would ask me, you know, what do you think of Avatar? And I would go, it doesn't matter what I think. <laughs> like, yeah, like, it, like, it truly doesn't matter what I think about Avatar. Like, you can't argue with money. Like, you can't argue with success. I don't know. Like, to, to an extent, you know, like, there are plenty of, of very successful movies that are bad. But at the same time, this, like, when they're this successful, when they're this successful, there's kind of nothing you can say because you can't say something doesn't work when it obviously does. <laughs> like it, it, when it just obviously does work for so many people. And, you know, we're driving at some of the reasons here and, you know, we can hem and haw all we want. But when you combine a very simple, albeit maybe derivative and predictable story with some of these interesting elements and especially some of these astounding visuals uh, you know, we talk about all the time, people come to media for different things. And a lot of what people come to, to film for is to sit in a chair and be immersed and amazed for a few hours. And damn, if Avatar isn't great at that. Mm. I, I had a thought, Michael, when you were talking about, you know, for you personally, yeah, there's this weird disconnect. And, and I think, I mean, how much of that is 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 aesthetic is the design mm. of the freaking navi where it's like they have the tails they are weirdly too tall they wear like thongs like like there's there, <laughs> there's something about the design that just feels like so spe specific and so strange uh that i i personally am never quite able to get over that hurdle and sink into this otherwise very like traditional classic epic movie. Mm. Um, there's just like, there's just something inexplicably odd and not quite right for my taste with some of the design choices. And I think that is like this, if, if, if that's not your reaction to the Navi, then, then I can maybe, then I can get how this is just like a great, awesome popcorn blockbuster but for me there's this like just i can't quite get over the hurdle of the design choices <laughs> well and, and i feel like it's just another example of something that like is exactly in this weird in-between place for me just like mm. everything else about this movie we're like yeah it was shocking at first but also like do i have a crush on blue sylvia Saldana? yeah i do like i don't know <laughs> what i'm supposed to do with that information about myself <laughs> And that is, like, unsettling. Yeah. Uh, but, like, yeah. So, I don't know. This movie, it's fascinating. It's going to be really fun. I'm excited to see The Way of Water for all the reasons that Me we've too. pointed out. I think there's a lot of cool potential there. I think whatever it's going to be, it's going to be fascinating to look at, to listen to, and to dissect. And just to be in a place where... For the first time in 13 years, there's not just one Avatar movie. There's not this single thing. There's something else to hold next to mm. it. And maybe that will render things more clearly and, and define things for us in a way that was, you know, as you said, Trisha, what we think about Avatar doesn't matter. Maybe, maybe it will soon. Who knows? <laughs> in the meantime, what have you guys been watching, Brian? 
Uh, I have been playing God of War Ragnarok, um, which I did not realize how appropriate it was to this conversation. Um, you know, Alex has talked about the first game a ton, and uh, I, I like the first game a lot, but the sequel just came out and I burned through it. And this one just really got me invested in the characters. And it's kind of exactly what we're talking about, where it's so epic and brutal, and then it can just make me care so much about this intimate father-son relationship and all. There's like this thematic core that all these characters and, and side stories are dealing with and stuff. So I was just constantly going from like this big adrenaline rush, I am a god, to fighting back tears and going like, oh, they love each other and they, they made a promise and they're keeping their promise and that it's a callback to earlier and I love you. Um, so yeah, like once, once the game has been out for long enough that people, anybody who's going to play it has played it, I want to like share some scenes on current social media platform um and uh, <laughs> because yeah there's just there's just some really truly beautiful moments and i was not expecting this game to just like really get to me in all the ways that it did and talking about earnestness you know the way alex was saying just like it's this gruff main character who never wants to sort of say what he's thinking but then when he does kind of like show a little bit of emotion it's just it's so huge and so powerful and just like the love he has for his son it's great um so yeah that's that's what i've been spending many 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 of my hours the past couple weeks doing need more time to play video games awesome. yeah i know i'm very much looking forward to it looking forward to it even more the original is great sounds like it's yeah just that much better um, awesome. Also, Richard Schiff is Odin, and it's the most inspired <laughs> casting choice ever. He just plays it like Richard Schiff, and it it's incredible. It's so good. Wow. Yeah. That was funny. There was yeah a week recently where Brian spoiled surprise Richard Schiff for me twice. Yeah. Wow. Surprise Richard Schiff in Black Panther and God of War. Um, awesome. Okay. Alex, what have you been watching? I have been watching uh, 1899 on Netflix, which is the new series mm -hmm. from the creators of Dark, which I made mm. all of you watch <laughs> for the podcast. Trisha, You're welcome, Trisha. That? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> what show? Um, yeah, you know they're, they're German creators, and you know I was a huge fan of Dark because it was uh, the most uh, ambitious time travel story I've seen attempted. You know, maybe didn't quite succeed in the end in all the ways, but uh, it's really ambitious and i and this show i don't know where it's going uh, i've only watched the first couple episodes but it seems equally ambitious in its uh goals uh i i don't know what those goals are yet but it's got a great international cast stunning production values beautiful cinematography great music all the same things dark had um so if you like dark i think you're gonna like 1899 and it's the same same writer same director um so it's the whole team back together again and adult Jonas is one of the main mm. characters. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Trisha, Trisha you that. might like the setting at least. It's like a period piece, obviously, um, on like a Titanic style kind of ship crossing the Atlantic. Okay, I do like that as a setting. Yeah. But That's it's a lot. Minor. It's very mystery boxy. Okay. Very mystery box. Nice. Okay, Trisha, what have you been watching? I'm also watching a Netflix series. I am watching season five of The Crown. And I'm so thrilled that it's out. Uh, I have adored that show since the beginning. Um, so for those that don't know, The Crown is about the 
20th century uh, English monarchs and uh, basically the royal family. Um, and the n- interesting thing about the show is that every two seasons, they totally recast the show. So, you know, in the first season, you had Claire Foy, who was playing the young Queen Elizabeth. And then in the next two seasons, you had uh, Olivia Coleman playing her in middle age. And in season five and what will be season six, you have Imelda Stoughton, the incredible Imelda Stoughton playing her. Um, and this cast is like, th- so they've recast everybody. And uh, so this uh, season five is like a totally new version of characters that we've spent a lot of time with already. So you have Imelda Stoughton playing the queen and then Jonathan Price is playing Prince Philip, which is great. Dominic West, uh, who I adore, is playing Prince Charles and he's very good in this. Um, Charles is still the worst, but Dominic <laughs> West is doing a great job. <laughs> um, and Elizabeth Debicki is playing Princess Diana. Hmm. And uh, aside from being, you know, six foot five, she, <laughs> which the show doesn't bother to explain. Um, she's, she wears her heels on her knees. She's suddenly very tall. <laughs> well, in fairness, I looked it up. I was like, Diana was 5'10". <laughs> so she was on the tall side. Um, right. But yeah, anyway, but Elizabeth DeBecky is doing an incredible job as well. So, um, you know, there's a lot of tragedy uh, in the royal family. We're in the 90s right now. Um so there's a lot of like everybody's marriages are broken and lots of lots of tragedy is happening everywhere or just like personal pain and drama. Um, but the show is still absolutely excellent. And so highly recommend. I know we talked you into watching The Crown, Michael. And so I'm excited to hear what you think of season five. I'm very excited to start. There's Talk about the- production value. I mean, that show oh, like, yeah. is like, holy crap. It's, it must be so expensive. It's oh, one of their most expensive shows, sure. right? Yeah, yeah but the money so is up on gorgeous. screen. It's, yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm going to miss uh, Olivia Coleman, though. I take umbrage to uh, Mel No, Stone you do not. Oh, there it is. Umbridge. <laughs> She's great. I did. I, at first, I was really sad about losing Olivia Coleman, but she won me over. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Can't wait to start. Awesome. Michael. Uh, so I listened. So I am I am visiting my mother for the holidays on the drive up here. Uh, I listened to a podcast called K63, uh, which is a Spotify podcast. It's a an adaptation of their uh, Spanish language Latin American podcast that came out a couple years ago, I think. Um, and so it's like nine episodes. They're all pretty short, and it basically follows the story of a psychiatrist played by Julianne Moore recording the sessions of this kind of enigmatic uh, patient uh, referred to as K-63, played by Oscar Isaac, who claims to be a time traveler from the year 2062. And so it's, it's this kind of radio play style where it's all these kind of recordings of their sessions uh, and it's largely just the two of them having dialogue scenes and there's the sci-fi-ness of it where he's claiming to be a time traveler and he's here for a reason. It's self-aware. It's like it exists in a world in which Back to the Future is a movie that like he's watched. And also it's a really interesting story world. It's executed very well. It's so much fun to watch Julian Moore and Oscar Isaac have you know, this rapport and to have these long dialogue scenes together. And so it's uh, it's kind of right in the nice zone of bite size, but still filling and gripping. And I just I 
I binged it all and very much enjoyed it. So K63 on Spotify podcast. Nice. Very cool. I've been interested in the like narrative podcasts, but I never quite got into it. I tried a couple and could never, you know, so, but that one sounds like a good one. This one's short and, and the episodes are short too. I listen to it also on my drive and yeah, it's like nine to 12 minute episodes and there's just like 10 of them. So it's, oh, nice. you can mm-hmm. totally binge it. Very cool. Yeah. No, it was cool. Maybe excited about this form. Like, oh, this is it's good. Good work, everybody. Well, this has been our conversation about Avatar, our upcoming conversation about the way of water will be coming to the beyond the screenplay patreon as a patron exclusive it's gonna be a lot of fun alex trish and i are gonna go see it in imax 3d i don't know where brian is he's gonna be somewhere else but presumably Literally no idea it. what city i'll be in that time <laughs> <laughs> but we'll all be on pandora there right? it is right because mm-hmm. we're going back to pandora it's still on pandora yeah. right yeah mm-hmm. it's not pandora. a new planet or gotcha. anything okay. no. okay. but we're in the water now <laughs> we're in the water it's a whole new world and for our next episode tis the season we will be talking about elf yay, yay! a movie that i have never seen oh uh, so excited oh, for you michael so, elf. this will be my first experience into <laughs> will ferrell doing stuff all I know about it. <laughs> He's an elf, I guess. Uh, yep, you got it. Great. John Favreau, also, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Directed? Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, uh, next episode is Elf. This has been our conversation about Avatar, Way of Water, patron exclusive, coming soon. I uh, want to say a big thank you to our patrons for making this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editors, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi. Uh, and we will see you in the next episode for Elf. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.